Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Sixteen years. It's hard to believe. So I, I noticed on the, uh, on the name tags that we uh, distributed, there's a little uh, sweet 16 on the bottom here. I hadn't even thought about that, but... If you want to give somebody a kiss today, go right ahead. <laughs> it is our 16th anniversary, and uh, for those who... Uh, the, the, the day that we first opened our doors and went public 16 years ago is one of those days that, that's just kind of... It's etched in the memories of all who were there, all 25 of us. <laughs> but I was thinking about it this week and, and thinking about the message and just thinking about the last 16 years. and. I don't know about you, but anniversaries, I get a little bit nostalgic about those kinds of things. And I, and I was thinking about not just 16 years ago, but about two years prior to that. Um, when we first started dreaming about and thinking about um, planting this new church called Northgate Christian Fellowship. And I remember at that time um, thinking about what this church would look like. And, 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 and in my wildest dreams, what would, it, what would it be like to be in a church like that? And I remember reading through a passage of Scripture... Um, very distinctly reading a passage I'd read numerous times before, many, many, many times before, but with a fresh set of eyes. And it's in Acts chapter 2. And it's a description of life in the early church. Beginning in verse 41, it says that those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the, mirror, by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number Daily, those who were being saved. That is an incredible passage of Scripture to me. It's just an incredible Scripture. In six sentences, describing life in the church, the church at its very, very best. Six simple sentences, and really it all comes down to one word. One word. Devoted. That is an incredibly powerful word because a lot happens when you're devoted. Literally, the word devoted, it's a compound word. It's made up of a bunch of different words all squeezed together in the original language, in the original Greek. And literally, if you translate it, it would have to do with being continually strong towards. In other words, it was the leaning of these people. It was the bent, it was the direction in which their lives moved. Devotion. It's a powerful word. It talks about ferocious dedication. It talks about reorienting of life. Just a whole different perspective, a whole different direction, a whole different way of moving through life. This word, devoted. What is it that made this early group of believers become more than just another religious sect? Another brand of Judaism? What is it that so changed the world through this group of people? I think it's this word, devoted. It is a description of the church at its very, very best. 
And it says the things that they are devoted to are the things that described life in that early church. And I said, wouldn't it be great to be a church like that? I would want to be a part of a group of people like that. And it's been our dream for the last 16 years to continually becoming more and more a people like those described in the early church. Fully devoted. With a leaning and a direction and a bent towards life. A reorienting of all of their life around these things. What it looks like when the church is at its best. It's like a compass where the needle always points north. No matter which way you turn with the thing, it always points in one direction. That's what it means to be devoted. And as the early church was devoted to particular practices and and particular things, so can we. Today, 2,000 years later, Northgate at its best, what would that look like if we were at our best? I think at our best, we are at our best when we have a hunger for knowledge and understanding. The very first thing it says about the early church was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church could not get enough. The very first act of devotion we're talked about, told about is their, their desire to learn and to grow. Not just a, a feed your brain, you know, um, become more informed kind of learning, but life-oriented learning. Change of direction. Continuing changing behavior, deepening of relationships, knowing God. And we know that was the direction of their learning because of the results of it. The way that they lived their life. I think they sat around and they remembered Jesus' example about how He lived and how He taught the Scriptures. He didn't just talk about them. He lived them out. The very first knowledge we have of Jesus in, is that uh, after his birth is at 12 years old when he's found in the temple arguing with the rabbis, debating, discussing scripture. It became the, 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 the qualifying aspect of his life. And yet often, often in his teaching, he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. At the beginning of his ministry, when after his, after his baptism and he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan... In all these different ways. How did he answer Satan? With scripture. Satan says to him, You're hungry, just turn these stones into bread and go ahead and eat. You could do that if you're the son of God. And Jesus said, no. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There was a hunger in Jesus. There was a hunger in his followers for scripture and for an understanding of how that works itself out in my life. Betty and I have a favorite restaurant. One of our favorite restaurants is up in, up in the Napa Valley. It's uh, Mustard's Grill. And it's, it's, it's kind of pricey, so we don't go there very often. But when we go there, there is one item on that menu that is, is like my favorite menu. It's called the Mongolian Pork Chop. Anybody here ever had the Mongolian Pork Chop at Mustard's Grill? Oh man, that's good stuff. It's like, it's the best meal you could have. And and they're the only place that makes it. I've had pork chops other places. I've tried to make pork chop at home. It's just not the same. And every time we go to Mustard's Grill, I say to myself, okay, this time I'm going to try something different. But I sit down there and I look at the menu and I go, Mongolian pork chop. i got to have the Mongolian pork chop. I mean, we don't come here very often. And why would I want to try something else when I know what I love? (laughs) You might say I am fully devoted to Mongolian pork chop. He said, that's the word of God. 
There was a hunger and a thirst for knowledge and understanding and application to life. They couldn't get enough. They sat around and discussed God's Word. They wanted to learn more. And they listened to the teachings of the apostles and they said, Wow, this is life-giving stuff. And I think Northgate at its best is when we are learning to reorient our lives around Scripture. And it's why we teach from Scripture every Sunday morning. But let me tell you, that is not enough. It is not enough to come once a week, sit for about 20, 25 minutes and listen to somebody tell you about Scripture. It simply is not enough. Do you know that every year, somewhere around 65 million copies of the Bible are bought in America? Either bought, given, or distributed through through organizations um, like the Gideons. 65 million copies of the Bible. The average American household has three copies of this book in their home. Three copies. And yet, in a Gallup poll done not too long ago, two-thirds of Americans could not name who it was that delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Only one half could name the first book of the Bible. That's Genesis, by the way, in case you didn't know that. And 80% of those surveyed believe in the Ten Commandments, but the vast majority of them could not name even four of them. (laughs) And among those who call themselves born-again Christians, 80% of them believe God helps those who help themselves is actually a verse in the Bible. It is not. Ben Franklin said that. And among born-again Christians, 12% actually thought Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. <laughs> that means that we, we buy the Bibles, we store them in our household, but we're not reading the Bible. And you cannot live on 52 meals a year. There was a hunger in the early church for better understanding and greater knowledge of Scripture, not just to fill their brains with information, but to learn how to live. They were devoted because they really believed that through Scripture we would know God. And by knowing God, we would have our lives transformed and live rightly. And yes, there are parts of the Bible that are confusing and hard to understand, but there is a lot that is not. So start and learn and apply what you, what you do understand. Romans 15, 4 says, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Jesus Himself said, The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. And if you don't know even where to start with that, we have a brand new class starting in a couple of weeks. There's an insert in your bulletin all about it. How to read and study the Bible for yourself. And if you feel like, I don't even know where to begin, there's a good place to begin. If you already know, then give yourself to times of reading and study. Because it's the very first thing that is the mark of the church at its best. Secondly, when we're at our best, we are genuinely caring for each other. It says the second thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. It is a second characteristic. And it says that they were strong towards each other. Fellowship was more than coffee and cookies after church. It was life shared together with genuine concern and with generosity. 
It says all the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 46, it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, not because they were perfect people. In fact, you read a couple of chapters later in the book of Acts and you find out a dispute arises. And the dispute arises about the very thing that was their strength. People were giving and were generous and helping each other in need and and making sure that there were no needy people among them. And, And yet, two chapters later, they're getting in arguments about the distribution of the food. Because it's not being done right. They weren't perfect people. But they were committed to each other. And the very thing that was their strength threatened to be the thing that would divide them. But they were committed to community. You see, community takes effort. It doesn't happen automatically. We have to work at that. Henri Nouwen said, Community is where the person I least want to be there is always there. And that is so true. And that's why so much of the New Testament is instructions about how to be with one another, to care for one another, to pray for one another, to be considerate of and to care for each other. Paul wrote, make every effort to keep unity in the bond of peace. Because it takes work. Community doesn't happen by itself. It says they devoted themselves to it. Back when I was in high school, in our youth group, uh, we had a Halloween party. And uh, it was a big Halloween party. It was probably about 50, 60 kids, you know, all dressed up in costume. And there were all kinds of games, you know, the whole bobbing for apples and, you know, passing the apple under the chin to the girl in the next row, you know, kind of thing. We had all these games, you know. And there was one kid that came to the, to the Halloween party. And he came with one of those full face, you know, full head masks. You know, this is when they were kind of new. And, and he had this, and he came dressed up. And didn't say a word through the whole party. He was a big kid. In fact, I thought it was an adult, you know. And everybody's wondering, who's the kid that's not talking, you know? Because he had this mask on. Nobody could tell who it was. And he just, and you could see he kind of shook because you could tell he was laughing under his mask because nobody knew who he was. And through the whole party, he never said a word. He just, you know, he just walked around through all the things that were going on and, and watched what was going on. And everybody tried to strike up a conversation with him and he never said a word. And then it came time at the end of the party where there was a judging of the best costume and everybody kind of paraded in front of the judges and they all checked off. And sure enough, the kid that won was the kid that never said a word and he wore his mask the whole day. And everybody thought to themselves, who is this kid? I can't believe it. You know, the whole party hasn't said a word. He is so good, man. What a great costume. He just kept his disguise on and kept in character the whole time. Who is this kid? Take off the mask. And he took off his mask. It was my cousin, Stephen. I couldn't even tell it was him. The thing was, through that whole party, he never really got to play any of the games because he had to keep his mask on. And he never really got involved in conversation or really got to enjoy the party because he had his mask on. You see, masks are great for winning costume parties, but they are a terrible way to go through life. Because as long as you keep the mask on, you can't engage in real conversation. You can't play the games. You can't get involved with other people. When the masks come off, we become genuine with each other. We learn and understand. And we see each other and we admit our needs. And community happens because burdens get shared. And people get helped. And everybody benefits. 
There's an incredible statement just a couple chapters later about the church that all the believers were one in heart and mind. You can't do that with masks on. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had, which means people had to admit they had needs. And then this incredible statement, there were no needy persons among them. I would want to be a part of a church like that. They devoted themselves to genuinely care for each other. And when we're our best, we live with a sense of God's presence in our lives. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were strong towards worship. Worship together. And the result of that was, it says, that everyone was filled with awe. It says, in fact, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They just couldn't stop getting together and worshiping together. They understood the value of regular, purposeful gathering for worship. The message paraphrase puts it this way. They followed the daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful, and they praised God. The sense of community spilled over into their relationships with each other and their relationship with the Lord. And it was a variety of expressions and a variety of places. There's no one way to worship God. There was reverent awe and joyful celebration. They met together in the temple courts and they met together in their homes. Varieties of expression. Varieties of places of gathering. Formal, informal, large group gathering, small group gathering. They couldn't get enough. Worship has been defined as the heart's response to God. And we need constant reminders that we live in the presence of God. And when we gather together in community as a large group like we're celebrating this morning, or we gather together in smaller groups in our homes, it is the tangible reminder to each and every one of us we are a part of something far bigger than ourselves. That the kingdom of God is real. That it is a reality. And we are a part of it. Each and every one of us. And when the church gathers together for times of worship, whether it be two or three, or two or three hundred, or two or three thousand, when we worship together, we are reminded we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. Any barbecuers in here? Yeah. Any love to barbecue? Okay. I mean real barbecuers. Not that, you know, turn on the gas and, you know, just like the little pilot thing. I mean real barbecuers. Pile up the briquettes, pour the stuff all over them, light the match, you know, real solid barbecuers, serious barbecuers. All right. See, I got to admit, I've gone over to the dark side. I, go, I went for ease. But, but there's something what happens when you start a barbecue. You pile up all of those briquettes and you douse them with the fluid and you light the match. And it flames up, and then the flame dies down. But the coals start to get hot. First red and then white hot. And, and you keep them bunched together. Because when you separate them out, they tend to get cold and die out. So you keep them bunched together. And the, way that, the reason you do that is because together the fire burns brighter and hotter. And every coal catches fire. And then, when they're all caught, then you spread them all out so they can do the job they were meant to do. And the same thing is true of the church. We gather together. 
to become white hot and to fan the flame in each other so that we would be really hot and ready to go out and be dispersed to do the job we were meant to do. That's what happens when we worship. Dallas Willard writes about worship. He says, As the living word and the written word occupy our minds, we naturally and supernaturally come to love God more and more because we see clearly and constantly how lovely He is. The glorious being of God is not just a truth we had better believe. It is an inexhaustible wonder and delight. In this way, we enter a life, not just times of worship. Worship will become the constant undertone of our lives. It is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining the restoration of our whole beings to God. Nothing can inform, guide, and sustain pervasive and radiant goodness in a person other than a true vision of God and the worship that spontaneously arises from it. That's what worship does. And when the church is at its best, we gather together, but we also go out living with the sense of God's presence. Now, there's one more thing, and it's almost kind of as a PS to the whole deal, because it just comes in the very, very last sentence. But I think it's critical to understand the purpose of the church, because the result of such devotion is this, that we as a church have a positive impact in our community. When people turn and look and see people so devoted, it's attractive. It says in verse 47 that they were enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The community around them sat up and took notice. Even those who didn't believe could not deny there's something different about this group of people. Look at how they care about each other. Look at how they serve each other. Look at how they are devoted to God and devoted to each other. There is something about that that is appealing because we long for that kind of relationship. And when the church is at its best, the community around it benefits and sees there's something I want to be a part of. Again, the message paraphrase puts it like this. People in general liked what they saw and every day their numbers grew as God added those who were being saved. Now, the church was not perfect 2,000 years ago. And over the centuries, we have proved our imperfection over and over again. There are a lot of things that the church has done wrong over the years, even recently. I remember when we were first starting Northgate, and I was going door to door, just asking people, you know, if they were part of a church and would be interested in the church. And and it was, you know when I did that? I did that in 1990, 1989, 1990. Remember what was happening in the church back then? James and Tammy Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, all of that mess was going on. And here I am trying to get people to come to church. <laughs> and it didn't stop then. Just in this last year, we've seen the church make mistakes. Church has never been perfect. And unfortunately, for some believers, being salt and light means being an irritant and keeping people under an interrogation lamp. You know, that's their vision of salt and light when just the opposite is the truth. God calls us to be a preservative, to be life-giving, to be light-shining. It says in chapter 4, Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was with them all. And that's what we need. 
much grace. Church has made mistakes over the centuries. Church continues to make mistakes today. But even now, it is still God's plan A. And there is no plan B. He has chosen to entrust this life and life-giving to us. 2,000 years ago, people devoted themselves to this. Each and every one of them said, I will not be the weak link in the chain. I will not slack off. I will reorient my life around all of this. And now it's our turn. 2,000 years later, it's up to you and me. And it has been my dream and my prayer and my hope and my vision for this church that we would be as much as we possibly could be like the church that's described in Acts chapter 2. Fully devoted. Devoted to God's work. Devoted to each other. Devoted to living lives of worship. And it is my prayer that people will look at that in our community and say, I want in on that. That stuff's real. I want to be a part. Would you bow your heads with me? Ultimately, the church is at its best when you and I are at our best. Devoting ourselves to learning and growing and understanding God's work in our life. Devoted to each other and caring for needs and and generous with our resources. Devoted to lives of worship lived in the presence of God each and every day. This morning, on our 16th anniversary... It is a call to us as a church to keep pressing forward, to become even stronger towards these things so that the community around us and the world around us would say something's real there. They're not perfect. Why is something going on? I want to be a part of it. Let's be that church together. Let's be that church. If you're here this morning as a guest invited by a friend, understand they invited you because they love you and they care about you. They want you to get in on this life they've discovered. You can do that this morning. Simple acknowledgement. Or that's what I want. That description is the kind of life I would love to have. And then you make a decision to say, okay, I'm not going to get there on my own. And in truth, I got a lot of my past that kind of keeps me and holds me back. See, the grace and the forgiveness of God says you get a fresh start right here this morning. Acknowledge your need. Ask it for His forgiveness. And choose to devote your life to following Him. If you're here this morning, if you've never made that very first step of faith, that decision of devotion, and you'd like to, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. So everybody's got their eyes closed. Everybody's got their heads bowed. Nobody's looking around. So you can do this privately just between you and me. But I would like to pray with you and for you as we close. So if that describes your situation this morning, and it's like God is tugging at your heart saying, this is what you've been looking for. This is what you want. 
It starts here and now. And you want to make that step this morning. Just look up and catch my eye, would you? Just keep looking up until I see you. Yeah. All right. Okay. Keep looking up until I see you. Don't want to miss anybody. as we close in prayer make this prayer the prayer of your heart Lord Jesus that life described is the life that I'm looking for and I know I can't get there on my own this morning I take the first step though I acknowledge my need I acknowledge my sin my past that needs forgiving. I acknowledge my hunger and my desire to follow you. And in this moment right now, my prayer is simply this. Forgive my past. Give me that fresh start. And give me the strength to follow in this devoted life to you. I want to be strong towards you. For that I need your strength. So give me that life now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.